All right. Well, I told you last week that, uh, you know, we kind of were at the end of the first exposition in Deuteronomy and we had a couple of weeks to go and I was at this point of like, what do we do? Do we jump into five and then I'm going to be out uh, for a few weeks? Actually, we're, we're going to not have this is the schedule coming up. Um, so no Sunday school the next two Sundays. I'll be out for winter camp on the 7th, but we'll be back on the 14th. Um, and so anyway, I just decided what we'll do is we're going to take this week and I'm calling it a Deuteronomy Christmas because I couldn't think of a better title. <laughs> but basically, uh, we're, we're, I read through the book of Deuteronomy this week, just all the way through, just looking just for, for uh, things in Deuteronomy that point to Christ. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. Um, but basically, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Deuteronomy in light of what we're celebrating here at Christmas, the, the, the birth of our Lord and our, our Savior, our God, uh, what He has come to do. Uh, both in um, bringing in, ratifying the new covenant and what he will return and complete. And, uh, and, so, and then just looking at Deuteronomy to see the gold there. And so kind of celebrating Christmas through the book of Deuteronomy today. So this is more of like a topical overview kind of thing. Um, but uh, it, we're going to dig into a lot of wonderful scripture. And I'm very thankful uh, that we're doing this. Um, but yeah, like I said, I just didn't want to start uh, chapter 5, the beginning of... of the next sermon, basically, that goes throughout the, the almost the, the book, um, and then, you know, have three weeks off, and we'd pretty much have to come revisit that and be like, what did we talk about a month ago? You know, so, so we're going to call this a Deuteronomy Christmas, and, uh, and really, uh, like I said, I'm going to give you a little intro here, because this started out with me reading through Deuteronomy, highlighting anything that really just referenced Christ directly, or indirectly, or referenced work that he would do, which really is going to be through these, these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, things like that. Um, and really quickly, it became very overwhelming because I was just like, it was just so much information and so much stuff. And, and it, you know, we're not like, I, we've talked about this hermeneutically. We're not trying to find Jesus everywhere and be like, ooh, I wonder if that's talking about Christ. And ooh, I wonder if that is a type of Christ or something like that. But there's a lot in Deuteronomy that that does point to the work of Christ, who he is, and is, is fulfilled or completed in Jesus Christ. And so I just got to the point where I'm just like, well, good grief. I mean, I guess we could just read the book and <laughs> like kind of uh, comment on it. And so then I just started narrowing it down. Like, what, what's the most significant or the most important, you know? And again, that's a hard call to make. But really, I felt like the most celebratory chapter that refers to the future work of Christ the nation of Israel, all of mankind, and all of creation, ultimately, and the work that he will do is Deuteronomy 30. And I just thought, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 30 today. Um, and, and again, not in a verse-by-verse exposition, but more in a, let's look at Old Testament prophecies, what Christ said in the New Testament, and kind of pull that together and go, look at the, look at the gold here, and look at the amazing stuff in this. Now, all that being said, no, I hear you flipping to Deuteronomy 30. But before we get there, <laughs> let me tell you some things I learned this week, because this is cool. Here's some, just some nuggets before we, we start reading through Deuteronomy 30. Um, first thing, I started looking, at, like when I started doing this, I started looking at the New Testament and just going through like New Testament quotes of Deuteronomy. That's kind of how it started this whole thing. And, and again, I just opened up a can of worms that was way too big. But, uh, but here's some things I, I learned that I thought was, was interesting. First thing, the four books most commonly quoted in the New Testament are uh, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalm, and Isaiah by far. Um, and again, because there's so much about Christ in, in, uh, in, in Psalm and Isaiah, I guess you would say. There's a lot of that Jesus refers to in Genesis, especially when it comes to marriage and creation and all that. Uh, and in Deuteronomy, it has a lot to do with the law, his fulfillment, um, and then him using it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, both Corinthians, Hebrews, and the pastoral epistles, and Revelation all refer in some way to the book of Deuteronomy. Again, which makes us go, okay, there's a lot of important stuff there. Um, and not necessarily direct quotes. And again, this is an estimate because sometimes the references to Deuteronomy are things where he's not quoting Deuteronomy exactly, but referring to something stated by God or stated by Moses in Deuteronomy. And so there's roughly 60 references to the book of Deuteronomy. Then there's 44 direct quotes of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. So again, that was just, uh, it just reminded me more and more of the importance of this, especially in light of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, when Jesus is in the desert being tempted by the devil, the Holy Spirit leads him out to the desert. He's tempted by Satan and proves, you know, this is, this is the, the second Adam. This is the one that is sinless and all that. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, 3, 6, 16, and 6, 13 in answer to Satan's temptations. And again, just showing uh, both Christ's understanding of the word, Christ's use of the word, um, and... Um, and just uh, and it gives us a, a model to to fill our mind with truth and to stand on truth in the midst of temptation and things like that. So that was interesting. But moving on from there, there was one direct reference of Jesus Christ that I think is significant in Deuteronomy. There's not a lot of direct references. Like in Isaiah, you get many references to the Messiah and what he will do and what the millennium will look like and things like that. There's not a lot of that in Deuteronomy. But there is one reference that is quoted in the New Testament that we know relates to Jesus Christ. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, like I said, I'm, these are things I just want to fly through before we open up to Deuteronomy 30. Because, again, I was looking for Christ in Deuteronomy, and these are, these are neat things. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Uh, Moses says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, again, this is all we had. I mean, this could be talking about Ezekiel, Jeremiah. This could be talking about Daniel. This could be talking about a lot of prophets. God did that. For each prophet that came, he put his words in his mouth. Those prophets went and said, thus says the Lord to the nation of Israel. But if you open up the New Testament, we know that the that, that people at Jesus' time were looking for this prophet and connected this prophet to the Messiah. In John 1, 19 through 23, um, that, that they came to John the Baptist asking if he was the prophet. Uh, it says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So here's the religious leaders. And the first thing, uh, and he says, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. So that's the first thing that John told him. I am not the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so then they asked him, well, then what then are you? Are you Elijah that comes before the Messiah to prepare the way? He said, no, I'm not. And they said, are you the prophet? Speaking of this verse right here, this reference in Deuteronomy, and he answered, no. Later, when Jesus divides the... Uh, the fish and the, the bread and feeds 5,000 men, not counting children and women. It's, it says in John 6, <clears throat> they gathered up all that was left over. They filled 12 baskets with fragments, five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And therefore, people saw the sign which he had performed, the, making the bread and the fish. They said, this is perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. There's a lot to dig out there. But they, they equated the prophet that was to come with the messianic king the, from the line of David that we just talked about in there. That whole sermon was about the Davidic covenant and what God would do uh, for this one that would come and sit on David's throne. And the people were going to take him by force and make him king because they thought he was the prophet from, uh, from Deuteronomy 18. We also see in Acts, both Peter um, and uh, Stephen make the connection to Jesus Christ specifically as both prophet and Christ and king and God. They, they put the whole puzzle piece together. Does that make sense? And so here you got in Acts 3, um, Peter, uh, after he healed the, the, uh, the lame man that was sitting at the, uh, the, the front of the temple, and, and he basically said it was Christ. The, the power of Christ. It was Christ, this man. He says this. Now he's talking here to the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaders. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And again, there's a lot of, I mean, he's calling Christ God, holy, the righteous one, the prince of life. I mean, this is, he's declaring who Christ is. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this uh, perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one, would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. This is going to lead right into what we're talking about here today in Deuteronomy 30. This is the message of Christmas, and it's referring to the Christ of the Israelites, the Christ that God said would come. Uh, Right now he's in heaven until the period of restoration of all things, about which God said in the Old Testament must take place, um, and and he is the, the one. And then he says right after that, he connects it to Deuteronomy. Moses for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So, all that being said, there's a direct correlation in the New Testament to this, these verses in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet is Christ. That is Christ. It is Jesus. Let me say it that way. And the prophet is also the Christ. The prophet is also the rightful king to reign on the throne in Israel. The prophet is Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of cool. So there's a direct reference to Christ in Deuteronomy 18. I threw in Stephen here right before he was stoned. He also made the connection uh, of Jesus Christ being the prophet from Deuteronomy. Um, And it says, this is uh, the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And he's making the whole connection, and that is Jesus, and you killed him, and then he gets stoned and he dies. So that's just one thing, like I said, route the gate, a little nugget, right there in Deuteronomy 18, that's Christ. And and that's the prophet that the Lord raises up. There is one other thing before we get into Deuteronomy 30. There's an indirect reference, I believe, of Christ. I'm totally fine if you want to argue this one with me. If you're just like, I'm not there, that's cool. I believe that this is referring to Jesus Christ. Um, because it is Jesus Christ, both we learn in the Old, the old and New Testament, that is, uh, well, in the Old Testament, it doesn't call him Jesus Christ. It calls him the angel of the Lord. But it's God who delivers them out of Egypt. And it is Christ who is with them during the deliverance, during the wilderness, during the um, uh, taking the land. Um, and, and you see that in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have references to it being Christ that led them uh, in the wilderness. And it was Christ who was there with them. Um, you know, we see it as a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, the presence of the Lord, all that kind of stuff. But, but again, that's not the Father, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's, that's Christ. Um, so anyway, here in Deuteronomy 9.3, uh, it says, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. Now, there's a lot there, but just understand, He is present with them as a consuming fire going over before them. He will destroy them, speaking of the people in the land. He will subdue them before you. We've talked about that. Their job is to listen to what he says, submit to and obey his word. He will do the work of delivering those people into their hands, bringing victory to Israel. Their job is to listen and obey. Yes, fight, but it's not their power that's going to take the land. It's their obedience and faithfulness. So that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken. Just real quick, this is what he talked about in Exodus. In Exodus 23, God said, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way, to bring you into the place that I have prepared. So this is the angel of the Lord that he sends to to get them out of Egypt, to guard them and guide them through the wilderness and to bring them into the land. Regard before him, obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, again, that's where the gold is, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the land. Then you fast forward to Joshua 5, and you see that Joshua, right before, or they've crossed the Jordan. This is right before they take Jericho. Joshua goes and he meets this man that is in the desert. When Joshua before they began taking the land, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So here's a man with a sword in his hand. It's a man, 
And Joshua was like, are you with us or them? And he said, no. <laughs> Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And, the, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord said to his servant? So first thing, every time an angel is, they fall, any, any time in the Bible you see somebody fall down before an angel that's not the angel of the Lord, God manifests. The angel always says, get up, I'm a messenger, I'm like you, you know. The ones that receive worship, or the one that receives worship, is always the angel of the Lord. And, and so again, here, I think you can say, this is God. This is God as a man. He's going to be the one with the nation of Israel to help them take captive. The, the and Joshua bows down before him. There's no rebuke to Joshua. And it says, the captain of the Lord's host, which is the Lord's army, uh, said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Just like Moses at the burning bush, the burning bush was the glory of God. I think you, you could make a biblical case that Christ, and there is, you know, you're in the presence of God. Here Joshua is in the presence of God, and it's going to be this man, or God himself, the angel of the Lord, however you want to state it, that, that, that gives them victory and, and goes before them in battle. And then I think if you read Judges 2, it really solidifies the Old Testament puzzle. It says, in Judges 2, after they've taken the land, after they failed to obey the Lord in wiping out all the people that the Lord called them to wipe out, it says, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to, to Bacham. That's how you say it. So the angel of the Lord is present with them. He, he comes from one geographical place to another. And, and so here's the angel of the Lord still present with them. I think this is the captain of the host of the army, of, or the captain of the, the Lord. Army. Uh, this is the, the, the Lord that he promised in, in Exodus 2 that would be with them and lead them into the land. It wasn't just like this, like us, where the Spirit of God is with us. But we don't see the the angel of God. It's all God. And God the Father doesn't do that. God the Father is, is always, you know, uh, under. Um, on you, you, you can't be in his presence, his glory is his thing. Uh, the God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't manifest himself physically in any way that we see throughout Scripture, minus the only thing I can think of is when the, the dove descends during the baptism of Jesus and you could see the Spirit of God. But again, he's unseen. But the Son, Christ, is seen many times in the Old Testament. Uh, it becomes a man and, and now is both fully man and I just think, again, best biblical explanation, this is Christ, just pre-incarnate Christ. So he came up from Gilgal to Bacham. He said, I brought you, I brought you up out of Egypt. So again, here's this, this person that came up. He's like, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land, which I have to your fathers. That's Yahweh God. God swore to Abraham. Again, make sure you go back and read the Abrahamic covenant. Those two men that were there and go down to Sodom and the angel of the Lord was one of them. Here's, it's, it's him. Uh, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Again, this is God. Uh, what is this you have done? Therefore, I said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your side. Their guards will be, gods will be snared to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Like I said, I just think that you could just make a good biblical case when God says in Deuteronomy 9 that it is the Lord who is going over before you as a consuming fire, this is the presence of God in some sort of physical manifest way. And I think that the best biblical answer for that is this is Christ going with them, Christ going before them, Christ being the one that delivers them. And, uh, and so there's a little kind of uh, significant, maybe indirect reference. But the main thing is this. So you got Deuteronomy 18, you got Deuteronomy 9, that's neat. But I think the gold and I think the Christmas message is wrapped up in what God will do through these covenants that he has sworn. And I think Deuteronomy 30 makes a, a connection uh, with the new covenant. The new covenant that has not been clearly proclaimed up to this point uh, and will not be ratified until Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross. But in Deuteronomy, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's foreshadowed at least three times. Deuteronomy 30 tells us the most that we know about the new covenant and its purpose for Israel until we get to the Psalms and the prophets right before their destruction. 
And so all that being said, I think, and this is like just kind of look into for the rest of our time here, as especially as we think about the what Christ has done for us, why we celebrate Christmas. I think Deuteronomy 30 just is another um, attestation of the glory of Christ and all that he will do. And what he, if you want to say it this way, began when he came the first time and will complete when he returns. So all that being said, again, the Abrahamic covenant is all over the place. The Mosaic covenant all over the place. And to quickly summarize those things, it is Christ that will fulfill all the eternal promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Like, like Shane said in there, the Davidic covenant could have been fulfilled in Solomon, if you want to say it that way, except for the kingdom has to be forever. And the house, the throne, and the kingdom are eternal, and that has not happened. and didn't even come close to happening. Um, same thing with the Abrahamic covenant. The land, the nation, all the earth being blessed, those are eternal covenants, eternal things. And even though they have come into the land, they are not in the land. They've actually, they've actually been uh, divorced or uh, rejected, um, or you could even say replaced for a time. And I know we hate that word because of replacement theology, but it's a biblical explanation of what's going on. It's just that they are not replaced forever. They're just, if you could say, replaced, rejected, or divorced for a time. There has to be a future regathering and bringing back into the land because those are eternal promises. But the greatest one is the new covenant because it is through what God says about the new covenant. And it's through Christ and the new covenant promises that he... Uh, and what he says in the new covenant that attaches directly to the, all these other covenants. And so what we find through the new covenant is God himself or Christ himself that is the one that is going to continue to, or that is going to complete the Abrahamic covenant, fulfill the Mosaic covenant. Um, we don't know anything about the Davidic covenant at this point in scripture, but he will be the one that comes from David and brings and sits on the throne and all that. Uh, and he's the one, the only one that's even capable of doing what the new covenant promises. So that's what we're going to look at. So the first thing is this. This is going to lead us into 30. In Deuteronomy 5.29, this is the first kind of mentioning of it. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5.29, it's them seeing God on the mountain. He gives them the law, and they say, we will obey him. We will follow him. And God says in response to that, oh, that they had such a heart in them. If only that was possible. What you just said with your lips, if that was only possible. He says that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. Now, that is the Lord's desire. It's what he's basically expressing here is what they're declaring with their lips is impossible. A heart that they would fear him, they would keep all his commandments and be his sons forever. All those things are only going to be made possible through the new covenant. In Deuteronomy, 10, he says, "Now Israel, what does your Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him." And serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. All of those things are what he does require of them. None of those things are they capable of doing apart from him. Transforming them, which is all, these are all new covenant promises. Fruits of what happened through the new covenant. He says, Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven, the highest heavens, the earth, and all that's in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples to this day. And so he says this So circumcise your heart. Now, that only he can do. And at the same time, they are called to separate themselves, to cut themselves off, to cut off their affections and desires for anything of this world and for the, all their affection, all their desire, all their allegiance, everything be him and him alone. That's the call for you too, right? Be holy as I am holy, which is impossible, except for the fact that Christ begins the work in us and does the work of making us holy, begins to sanctify us, and then one day eventually glorify us and make us perfectly holy. He calls them to do something that he, they need his assistance or his complete transformation to do. So, no longer. Stop being stubborn, rebellious, and refusing to submit to me. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan, the widow, shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And then... Here, and this is where we're going to get into our, our text. Deuteronomy 29.4. At the very end, after both 
sermons, and at the very beginning of the third sermon, he says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know. So he tells them that, that they owe oh, that they had such a heart. You must do these things, and you must do it with all of your heart. He says, your heart, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to do this yet. It doesn't mean they can't obey. It doesn't mean they're not called to submit. It doesn't mean that they're not his people. It just means there's something else that has to happen to them. And Deuteronomy begins to tell us a little bit about that. And then scripture fills in and you to read. And so, and, and maybe, maybe it's best to do this first. Before we read Deuteronomy 29 30, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a lot of more sense, let's look at what, what comes after this, all right? So you understand this whole circumcision of the heart, what God will do to the heart, what the heart transformation of the new covenant promises does for the people of Israel, because it, it's, it's completely attached to all this stuff right here. And so if you flip your Bibles over to Colossians, now we're going to do some flipping real quick, okay? Uh, you can highlight, circle, read, whatever. I have it up here if you're just like, I'm not flipping all these places. So Colossians 2, 8 through 14. Here's the New, Co- or the New Testament. Uh, this is Paul talking about what Christ has done. And he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary princes of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's God. Fully God, fully man, God in human flesh. And in Him, you can make and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, look at this, you, speaking to believers, were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is not talking about physical circumcision like the Jews. The removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He uses this analogy of circumcision to talk about what God does to our hearts when he makes us alive. Spirit. We go from being dead in our sin to alive in Christ. We go from being covered in sin, if you want to say it that way, immersed in sin, unable to get out of our sinfulness, to the Lord cuts it away and removes the sin and brings us into His presence. This is new covenant stuff, and this is what Christ does. He goes on to say, Having been buried with Him in baptism, which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who him, Christ, from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, it says, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, the consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, this whole circumcision of the heart is that the Lord has to do something for any of us to be able to have faith, to be able to love Him, to be able to obey Him, follow Him, submit to Him, all that stuff. It doesn't mean that He's uh, giving us... um, He still gives us the standard of obedience, love, submission. But we need Him in order to be able to do any of those things. No one can come to God on His own. No one can fulfill the law on His own. No one can obey the Lord on His own. No one can have faith on His own. Again, Romans 3 tells us that, right? There's no one good, not one. No one who seeks after Him. No one who knows Him. All of us, if you added up everything good about us, it would equal all of it together, zero, right? We need Him to change us. And this whole circumcision of Christ and the circumcision of the heart is that thing that we need to change us. It's the same thing that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the other prophets, when they actually tell us exactly what the new covenant is, it's what they're talking about. If you flip back over to Jeremiah 24, now again, remember, this is right before God destroys the nation of Israel. And they're exiled into Babylon, all that stuff. The temple is gone. The king is gone. The line of the king is gone. The line of the king is cursed so that no human king could even come from the line of David and actually fulfill what God told them to do. I mean, it's, God makes it impossible for his covenants to, to, be, to, to actually take place because the only possible way is for the God-man to do it. And so all that being said, though, right in the middle of the destruction, he begins to talk about this new covenant. This new covenant that makes everything possible. This new covenant that is for Judah and for Israel. And that will allow them to, to obey Him, to love Him, and follow Him. In Jeremiah 24, 6-7, He says, I will set my eyes on them, on Israel, for good. I will bring them, Israel again to this land. This is before He kicked them out. And He says, and I will build them up and not overthrow them. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know Me. 
They need God to give them the ability and the heart to be able to know him. I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will return to me with their whole heart. He goes on to Jeremiah 29 to declare the same thing. I know the plans I have for you, Israel, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Again, has not happened. And they need a heart transformation for this to happen. But they will seek him. And then we get to the gold. If you don't have it underlined, highlighted, and marked off, Jeremiah 31 through 33 is full of amazing truth of Christ and what he's going to do. Uh, and, and this is the first thing. He begins to declare with precision the new covenant. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not the church. Yes, we're grafted in. Yes, he ratified it on the cross. Yes, he began the church after that. And yes, Gentiles are participants and partakers of the new covenant promises. But this has not happened. For Israel and Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of the hand to bring them to the land of Egypt. So that's the Mosaic covenant, what he did on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. It's my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. I mean, even just think about what God has sent. As the church, we're called to go into the world and make disciples, to teach everyone to obey him, right? When this happens, there's no need for teaching anymore. There is an understanding for the people when this is, when this is fulfilled that all Israel will know him. The Israel that is there. And he's talking to Judah and Israel. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And then, just to make sure we trust him, he connects this to the Noahic covenant, which he's basically saying, it's impossible for me not to do this for Israel and for Judah. He says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun by light, or for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. So again, all that, this is like him going, these things are fixed. I've declared they're, fi- they're, they're fixed because of the Noahic covenant. They're fixed because I'm the one controlling them. He says, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, which it can't, again, because he's sworn that it won't, and he's the one that upholds it. Then the offspring of Israel will also cease, which they can't, because he's sworn to uphold them, and nothing will thwart his plans from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, which again, they can't, because it's unfathomable, well then I also will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord, which he can't do. In other words, he's basically... Binding himself by his own oath, I will do exactly what I've said, even though it does look impossible for us. And like I said, I love any of our, I mean, I know there's people probably in here that, that think maybe that the, the church has replaced Israel, and that's fine. I mean, we all got to start somewhere, right? And so, but the thing is, is he can't. He can't do that forever because he's sworn that he won't. And we got to wrestle with these things when we look at what he says in his word, especially these new covenant promises. Jeremiah 32, he goes on to say this. Behold, again, right in the middle of the new covenant stuff. I will gather them, Israel, out of all the lands to which I've driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be people. I will be their God. And I will give them one heart. In one way that they may fear me always. He's going to instill in them the fear of him. He's going to give them a heart to be able to fear him. To be able to love him. To be able to obey him. He must do what he says. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from them. Do good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. So that they will not turn away from me. 
It will be impossible for them to forsake him when he fulfills this. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising to them. What's really neat there, uh, I didn't write it down. If you go read Jeremiah 33, right after that, actually the, the exact verses, Jeremiah 33, if you just flip over, if you're looking at your Bible, flip over one chapter, in the very end of Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through pretty much the end, it's so cool. God, in those few verses, weaves together every covenant he's made up to that point. And he ties it all together with what God's going to do through the new covenant. He talks about the, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant in Numbers 25. He, he binds it by the whole Noahic covenant. If these things can pass away, then you know, maybe I'll forget these covenants. And, and again, all of these things are summed up in Christ. It's Christ who will do the work. It's Christ who will sit on the throne. It's Christ who will bring them into the land. It's Christ that will fulfill these new covenant promises. Um, and... and uh, and that's just amazing. Ezekiel goes on to do the same thing. Ezekiel 11, again, thus says the Lord, I'm going to gather you from the people. I'm going to assemble you out of the countries from which you've been scattered. I'm going to give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they'll remove all of his detestable things, his abominations. Look, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. Speaking about Israel, I will take the heart of stone, which... That's where they're at now, darkened and hardened and rejecting the Messiah. And I will give them a heart of flesh, a teachable, humble, submissive heart, that they may walk in my statutes, that's the result, and keep my ordinances, that's the result, to do them. And they will be my people, I will be their God. Ezekiel 36, another key chapter of the new covenant. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but my holy name, which you have profaned, among the nations where you went, even to this day, they profane the name of God wherever they go. Israel is a reproach to God currently. And he has not forsaken them and he loves them and he will redeem them and bring them back. Both of those things are true. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. This is why he will act and this is what he will do. For his own name's sake... And the nations will know I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is talking about the removal of sin and making them holy. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart new spirit and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Same thing Jeremiah said. But then Ezekiel adds this. Look, I will put my spirit within you. It's not just a new spirit. It's not just a new heart. He's going to put his own spirit in them. And he says, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. It's awesome. Awesome stuff. It doesn't at all belittle the fact that we have been grafted in, that he's doing this work through the church. It doesn't at all mean that we are not participants and partakers of the new covenant promise that God made with the nation of Israel. It's just to say that God made a promise with the nation of Israel that, that has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And there is just gold there. And it's amazing, amazing stuff. Um, oh, no. I got all mixed up on my notes here. Uh, so now, now you can flip over to Deuteronomy 30. And let's just read it. Because if you know those things from the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, then when you read Deuteronomy 29 and 30, you're going to go, that's it. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the New Covenant. He's talking about what God's going to do. And even before he takes them into the land the first time, he declares to them what they're going to do, how they're going to get kicked out, and how he's going to restore them and take care of them because he is God and he can't go back on his word. So here we are. Where, that was the intro. Here's Deuteronomy 29. All right? So starting in verse 22. Now the generation to come, your sons... Now Again, we're on the plains of Moab. This is right before they go. Moses is about to die. Joshua is about to take them over the Jordan. They're about to go into the land. 
And he's telling them what's going to happen after them. <laughs> the generation to come, your sons will rise up after you, the foreigner who comes from a distant land. When they see the plagues of the land and the diseases, which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste. This, this land of milk and honey, this land is beautiful, the, the chosen land of God, eventually is become, going to become a desolate waste. And it's, and it's because of Israel's rejection of him. And he says, uh, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord God done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And then God says, men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord. I just said that. We're saying that today. The church today proclaims that the reason that Israel's not there, the reason they're scattered and not gathered, is because they rejected God. Now again, God has not rejected them. And he will be faithful to fulfill all he said. But that's what's going on. The reason we're grafted in, the reason the church is functioning, all this stuff, is because they rejected their Messiah. It says, uh, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went, they served other gods. They worshipped them, gods whom they didn't know, uh, and, and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in the book, which we're going to get, that's in Deuteronomy 27, 28. And so everything he said, he will fulfill. The Lord uprooted them from the land in his anger and in the fury and in great wrath, and he cast them into another land as it is to this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our sons forever, um, I'm sorry, the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all of this law. And then he says this, So, it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, Israel, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you, and you return, that's that word that we talked about last week, it's the same word used for repentance, it's repenting and returning to the Lord, and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I commanded you and your sons, then the Lord God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Again, they must return to them with all their heart. They can't do that until He changes their heart. He'll only change their heart through the new covenant that He's ratified through His Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us a new heart and a new spirit, a heart that's teachable and able to have faith, to believe, to follow, to obey. He's, this is new covenant language. And then He says this, and this, this is awesome. If you're outcast are at the ends of the earth. From there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. This nation that He will regather is going to be greater than anything that has ever been over there before. And this is always the heart of God. God always longs to regather Israel, to bring them back. God longs for the day that He redeems His people, His harlot bride, and He brings them back into the land. And God Himself, when He became a man, said this right before He goes to the cross. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones all those, or stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. From the time he kicked them out, I mean, God has always wanted to do this. Christ is saying with his own lips, I have always wanted to gather you back. I've wanted to bring you back to the land. Which means that that little existence of Israel in the land for a few hundred years before they were kicked out by Rome is not the regathering. That is not what God has ordained. And that is not what he's talking about with these covenants. Because here he's saying, I wish, I, I always long gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's the coming judgment that they're currently under, that they've been scattered throughout the world and they're not there, they're not repentant. And he says, for I say to you, you from now on, you will not see me until, there's a time stamp there, they won't see him again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a direct reference to Psalm 118, which talks about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. This is the day the Lord had made and that they will one day say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and he will 
fulfill what he said. This is, he's, refer, he's wanting them to go back and read Psalm 118 and go, this is what's going on. It is Christ and Christ alone that is the one that the, the rejected cornerstone has to, they have to believe. They have to, uh, to accept him. Uh, and when they do, they will see him again. Now, flip back, or going back to where we left off in Deuteronomy 29. Right after he says, I've wanted to gather you. I want to regather you. He says this. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That is straight up new covenant language. That is the new covenant in Deuteronomy. That is the work of Jesus Christ in Deuteronomy. And it's attached to all those things we talked about, the circumcision of the heart, that Christ does, that we read about in Colossians 2, all the stuff from Jeremiah 30, 33, that Christ will do to the heart through this new covenant, the Ezekiel stuff that God will do to the heart through the new covenant. And we know that the new covenant was ratified on the cross because Christ himself said that. At the, 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 the final Passover, the Last Supper, the, the, the first uh, Lord's Supper, if you want to say it that way, right before Gethsemane and right before he goes to the cross, he basically straight up says, new covenant will begin tomorrow morning when this happens. Matthew 26 says, when he had taken the cup and he gave thanks, he gave it to them, said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Mark 14, he had taken a cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, they drank from it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then in Luke 22, and in the same way, he took the cup after they eaten and said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Up until that point, new covenant had always been future tense, and Christ makes it present tense. This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. On the cross, Christ ratified, began. The new covenant was, was, was began, ratified, if you want to say it that way. And, and, and it's in effect now. And we are partakers and participants of these new covenant promises. All those things you read in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you can say, that's me. I now have faith. I love the Lord. I obey the Lord. I have a new spirit. And at the same time, there's things in there you know aren't true about you. You know you don't know him fully. You know that you still uh, forsake him or sin against him. You know you're still rooting out idols in your life. So what he said is either hyperbolic or it's just not complete. And Israel and Judah are not gathered into the land. There is no king sitting on the throne. There is, that all those things that he attaches to the new covenant definitely aren't happening for the nation as a whole. But all that being said, we know that it is Jesus Christ and Christ alone that has fulfilled the new covenant or has ratified the new covenant and will fulfill it at his return. The new covenant that we're partaking of now, the Holy Spirit of Christ that dwells in us, will one day redeem Israel as a nation and bring them back into the land. And then he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 30, The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. That's talking about what, what's going to happen during the tribulation. You shall again obey the Lord and observe His commandments, which I'm commanding you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all your work of your hand, the work of your hands, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, this judgment that will take place, the, uh, the, the ending of all of their enemies, that will happen. I mean, Shane just talked about it in there, that, that God will make their enemies, a, or Christ's enemies, a footstool for His feet, that He, will, uh, uh, that he will, will do away with all of His enemies and all the enemies of His people. There'll be a future rejoicing, a future rejoining of God to Israel. Um, and their obedience and repentance will happen at the advent of the millennial kingdom and throughout the entire duration of that kingdom. And that's what Hebrews 8 is talking about. It foretells the, the, this event in the New Testament is basically attaching Christ to these promises of the new covenant that he says would happen. In Hebrews 8, it says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, 
And so basically he's saying that this new covenant, Christ is going to be the fulfillment of the old and the one that brings in the new. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So again, here is New Testament uh, church terminology, if you want to say it, connecting Christ to the fulfilling of this covenant with Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant made with their fathers and the day I took them out of the... Uh, by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people, they shall not teach anyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Hebrews 10, 15 through 18 also refers to this new covenant and, and attaches Jesus Christ to the one that will do this. And then, again, not that we have time today, but Revelation 6 through 19 is the revelation of Jesus Christ as he redeems Israel in the future. He judges the earth through the tribulation, all the enemies of God, all those things take place, and then they repent, they return, and he redeems the nation of Israel. But this is where the gold is. Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is the New Testament basically telling us exactly what's happening now and reminding us that everything he's sworn in the Old Testament will take place exactly Exactly as he says. I don't have slides for you. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But you talk about a Christmas story. This is it. Romans 9 through 11. For I'm telling the truth in Christ. And I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. This is Paul saying this. I could wish that I myself were accursed. Separated from Christ. For the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. You talk about a love for your enemies. I mean, Paul, there's a love there deeper than anything I've ever understood. To, to love the, the people that are trying to kill you and hate you the most. Um, and, and you would be willing to be separated from Christ if that was possible for the sake of their souls. Who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. Whose are the fathers and from who, uh, whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall uh, God bless forever. Amen. So he's basically talking about Israel. The whole thing's about Israel. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're looking at the church. I mean, Israel's gone. They've been, they're getting, they're, 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 they've rejected their Messiah. And then he goes on to say, for not all Israel are who are descended from Israel, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. It's through Isaac your descendants will be named. Um, that is, uh, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So basically, he's going on to say there, all those who have faith will be saved by God. Even during this current dispensation in the church, many Jews are coming to the Lord. All of Israel is not being saved, but God is saving all of those from Israel who believe in him and repent and, and follow Jesus Christ during this time. He goes on to talk about his plans and his ways. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on who he has compassion. Um, and, and he shows mercy and compassion on those who, who he desires. I'm going to pick it up in verse 19. You'll say to me, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? On the contrary, he says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The thing molded cannot, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although making, uh, willing to demonstrate his wrath and, his, and make his power known, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also among the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. This is a, 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 a foretelling of, of what he will do through the church. And it's unbelievable and amazing. Isaiah talked about it. And again, he goes to talk about Isaiah saying the same thing. And Isaiah saying the remnant will be saved. And then at the very end of, of chapter 9, he says, just as it is written, again in Isaiah 28, I lay 
In Zion, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So he's basically setting it all up to go, God talked about this. I want Israel to be saved. Right now, they're being rejected. Right now, God is saving the remnant and God is saving Jews through the church. But God is opening up salvation through the new covenant to both Jews and Gentiles. So, again, you've got to think of, put yourself in early church mindset. This was new and unique. And Peter and John had a hard time watching Cornelius. Hard time realizing they, couldn't, they could eat now. Pork and different things. They had a hard time reconciling the fact that uncircumcised Gentiles were being heart circumcised by Christ and partakers of the new covenant promises. That's not what they had foreseen. And now Paul's going, but it was in the Old Testament. Chapter 10, he talks about how we're saved. It's through the word of God. It's through believing in Christ. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, the Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. You are saved by grace through faith. He goes on to say uh, in verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that the word of faith, which we're preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's the Christmas story. That's it. God sent His Son. He was born like us. He fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. He died on a cross ratifying the New Covenant. All those who call on His name will be saved. And then He talks about going and making that known to all the nations. But then look at verse 19. But I surely say Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. Listen, he's using the church right now to stir up jealousy in his people Israel, which will eventually lead to their repentance during the tribulation. It says, and Isaiah was very bold and said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's talking about us. But as for Israel, he said, all the day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient, obstinate people. And here is the gold. Verse chapter 11. I say then, has God not rejected his people? Or I'm sorry, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says? And he talks about Elijah. And when Elijah thought he was the last one and God's like, I've got, I've got, uh, how many is it? 4,000? Anyway, he, I've got a whole remnant, basically, he's saying, that have not bowed their knee to Baal, 7,000. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 7 to say this. What then? What, what Israel is seeking, it did not obtain. But those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. By the way, that's Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. Uh, and or it, it references Deuteronomy 29.4. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And I say then, did, uh, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? So he's basically saying, was there disobedience? And they're stumbling over the rock of offense. I mean, have they fallen away completely? He says, may it never be. But by their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Again, praise God that through their disobedience, Christ has, has been manifest to us through the church. Which, but there's still a future for them to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches to the world and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as uh, I am uh, an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if, look at this, their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When they repent and they return and they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Messiah... The dead will rise. We will return. He will be here on earth. He's basically saying, if you think this is good, 
when they repent, it's, it's, it's going to be unbelievable. So uh, anyway, then he talks about don't be arrogant towards the branches. They were broken off so that you could be grafted in. So don't be conceited, but fear, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. So again, don't be conceited and think we're better than Israel. Don't be conceited and think God's replaced them with us. And now we are the, the recipients of all these promises. You're being grafted in. Praise God for that, but don't get arrogant. And then he says, Behold the kindness and severity of, the, of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what was nat- by na- uh, nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who were the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. And this is new covenant, Old Testament, new covenant terminology. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God cannot go back on his word. And then he ends by basically saying, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has given first, or, uh, first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is talking about. It's talking about the future displacement, the future rejection, the future judgment. And then the future regathering, the future covenant, the future uh, redemption and forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ, whom we celebrate, that came as a man, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, ratified the new covenant, and will one day complete everything that he swore in all of the covenants that he made to the nation of Israel. And that's... That's worth celebrating at Christmas. And that's what Deuteronomy 30 is all about. So I felt like if there's anything in Deuteronomy that points to Christ and blows our minds, that's it. So I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas. I know I'm going to see you before then, but we won't meet again before then. And, uh, and I can't wait to get back into Deuteronomy when we get back. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed.